Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Peter Chen. He's a senior lecturer in political science at the University of Sydney. He's here to talk about his new book, Animal Welfare in Australia, Politics and Policy, published in October 2016 by Sydney University Press. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. So, Peter, what is animal welfare, and and is, is it a new issue for humans? No, it's not a new issue for humans at all. So it goes right back to antiquity and uh, ancient philosophers debated the uh, relationship that people should have with animals, their moral obligations and whether animals had the sort of sentience that we exhibit. So it's not a new phenomenon, but certainly it has uh, attracted a lot of renewed attention in the last 50 years, particularly following the publication of two key works. One, a book called Animal Machines, which was in a sense, one of the first really critical investigations of modern industrial farming practices, and then Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, which is a volume many people would know about. That's right. How did you get interested in the relationship between humans and animals in Australia? Yeah, so I've had a long-standing interest in animal well-being at a kind of personal level, but I never really worked on it at a professional level. And then in 2011, something happened in Australia. There was a a major scandal about the treatment of Australian cattle in Indonesia, and Australia's been expanding its live export of, uh, of cattle. Uh, in recent decades, and there was some footage on the Australian equivalent of PBS um, about the slaughter practices in Indonesia. It was very shocking to Australians who um, are quite um, psychologically and physically distanced from most animal production in this country, and that led to a very strong and immediate backlash, uh, a temporary suspension of live exports, um, doing some considerable damage to Australia's relationship with Indonesia um, and also damage to the uh, the local industry. And uh, I thought this was very interesting because animal welfare issues have been one of those relatively low-level issues in Australian politics. And yet when you talk to Australian politicians about the live export debate in 2011, they report that they 
never received the amount of uh, calls to their offices or the number of emails on the issue that they did following that expose. And so I thought there's something interesting going on here. There had been some work done from political sociology and also political philosophy and ethics in Australia, um, but I couldn't really find anything that was comprehensive in terms of policy making. And I'm a policy analyst myself. So um, because there was a gap, I uh, jumped into it. That's right. Um, you know, you say that the history of human-animal relations in Australia is is a political one. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, it's political in that it's about power. It's about the way in which um, people exercise power, and political scientists are all about the study of power. But also, I think uh, it's safe to say that um, Australia's uh, post-colonial history, and in that I mean post-settlement by uh, Europeans, um, has had very strong uh, dynamics that have been shaped by the way in which we think about animal use and animal industries. And so, for example, one of the first, in a sense, governmental acts in Australia that was um, designed to think about the, the colony moving from its, uh, its penal uh, history into its kind of modern history is how, in a sense, a yeomanry could be engineered through the introduction of dairying. And so various governments have used issues of animal industrial production as a core part of the way in which they shaped the, uh, the modern society that is Australia. So it's a, it's a question of power, both in terms of the relationship that individuals have to animals, but also the way in which the state thinks about the political economy of the nation and the way in which it engineers particular sorts of social conditions. You mentioned the um, the PBS analogous, um, you know, uh, uh, record. Uh, what what does the media, you know, is the media interested in animal animal human relations? Not particularly. Um, Australia is an agricultural nation. It has a strong history of um, seeing itself very much in terms of a kind of frontier and settler society. And like uh, parts of the United States, it, it venerates. Uh, farming, but it is one of the most urban nations on earth. So there's a kind of misfit between the lived conditions of most Australians and its kind of uh, rural imagination. So what happens is occasionally there'll be um, periodic exposés into aspects of the Australian rural or animal agricultural practice that leads to um, spikes in public interest or concern. So we've seen them with regards to issues of live export really from the 1980s onwards. Um, the treatment of kangaroos and kangaroo culling, for example, and most recently here in the state of New South Wales about um, the greyhound racing industry and the treatment of waste, quote-unquote, waste animals out of that industry. That tends to be sparked um, uh, by a particular expose, often from the, um, the, the uh, public broadcaster, which is the quality media in Australia. That leads to a spike in public opinion, um, uh, political response, but that tends to die down because, by and large, most Australians are quite distanced physically and psychologically from these issues. That's right. What does Australia's public opinion kind of generally say about animals? And, and there's not just one public, is that right? No, that's right. So Australia is a diverse uh, country. It's uh, increasingly ethnically diverse uh, and, uh, and religiously diverse. But I think it's safe to say that Australians love animals. They think they're delicious. <laughs> and there, there are different types of animals, right? There's animals in the home, there's animals on the plate, and there's animals far away. Those, those are kind of the animals that I... Think about yeah. So basically, um, yes, Australians have, a, like most countries, uh, an idiocentric and a somewhat arbitrary uh, way of classifying animals. So, um, if we take the animals in our home, they tend to be pets. 
uh, or companion animal species, and Australians generally have a high regard for them. So, for example, there's been a growth in the uh, the purchasing of what we might call premium pet foods in Australia over the last decade, and those um, foods demonstrate a high degree of price inelasticity, almost the same way that baby food does. So. Australians will give up other things before they start sacrificing the quality of the food they feed to their pets. On the other hand, production animals and those animals that are designated as pest species um, are given extremely low levels of regard and can be subject to quite um, brutal and um, and problematic treatment. So uh, these are kind of obviously arbitrary classifications and every society has those and they do differ between different societies. Um, but um, Australians generally, if you ask them at the kind of abstract level whether they think animal cruelty is acceptable, will say that animal cruelty is not acceptable. But um, certainly when they're confronted with many of the practices that go on within parts of animal agriculture, they would designate those practices as cruel but they do continue within the Australian uh, polity. And that's largely because of the politics of animal welfare is one of capture by agricultural interests largely, who um, operate predominantly in rural and peri-urban areas, and they tend to be insulated uh, from uh, mainstream urban political opinion in some ways. What challenges do policymakers who care about animal welfare in Australia face? Well, they face a number of challenges. I guess one is uh, idiosyncratic and variable public opinion. So Australians exhibit uh, a high degree of concern at unpredictable uh, times and the concern mobilises and demobilises very rapidly. And so if we take the case of the live exports to Indonesia, um, it was a surprise to politicians because there have been issues around live exports going on for 30 to 40 years and they are subject to periodic spikes. But the issue of Indonesia was tied into a number of wider issues about Australia's colonial past, its racial politics, its relationship with Indonesia, in addition to just its ob objection to the way in which uh, slaughter practices in Indonesia were being carried out. Um, so if you want to push ahead on reforms in Australia, you often find that your support base is uh, quixotic and can disappear from underneath you. And we saw that in um, recent years where the New South Wales government attempted to phase out greyhound racing. Um, initially, they thought they had a, a high level of public support because of a very significant scandal in the industry about, in a sense, um, uh, cheating with regards to the way in which the animals were doped and utilised, but also just the um, mass graves full of waste animals that were discovered. Um, but that um, public opinion dropped away very rapidly. So that's problematic. And also they face an extremely well-organised and concentrated uh, industry who will push back against any attempts to change animal welfare laws. So Australia has had um, a relatively slow process of introducing new protections. Um, the animals that are most protected are clearly those animals that are most proximate to people. So things that you can do to a production animal or a quote-unquote pest animal, you could, we would be prosecuted and could go to prison for if you tried to do it to a family pet. So you're a political scientist with an interest in policy. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did to, to research the book? 
Yeah, so basically what I wanted to do was do what's called a domain study, and that is to look at the entire domain of animal welfare and uh, look at it in a kind of comprehensive view. And that necessitated what we'd call a mixed methods model. So it included the use of interviewing of industry and political participants, advocates, activists, politicians, and people who work within the industry, uh, social network analysis of organisations to see where the various organisations, industry, political, and, uh, and pressure groups, how they related to each other and exchanged resources, the use of survey analysis of the public and also the collection of uh, public attitudinal data that's been undertaken by other researchers in Australia, um, and also a very detailed content analysis of media to examine media representations of animals, both in terms of popular electronic media representations, um, newspaper coverage of policy issues, but also um, looking at um, the way in which animals are represented in the shelves of Australian supermarkets, for example. And that allowed me to get a kind of 360-degree triangulation view of the way in which this policy domain uh, operates and try and explain how policymaking occurs, um, not just in those um, kind of um, atypical spikes in public opinion, but also in the kind of routine nature of bureaucratic policy making that often occurs below the level of public uh, awareness. That's right. You say that the, the policy making in the area of animal welfare in, involves the mobilization of values. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so basically there are two traditional views of thoughts about how we define what public policy is. So the classic sort of 1950s North American style definition is um, the politics and public policy is about who gets what, when, where and how. And that's the kind of traditional realist resource allocation definition of public policy and politics. Whereas more recently we sort of say that actually public policies are often much more about the way in which values are expressed. And if we take, you know, a classic example, the border wall in the United States, it has nothing really to do with the movement of people because we know that net migration to the United States is zero, but it is all about the articulation of a particular sort of value proposition um, that the current president of the United States is attempting to articulate. So um, what we see in the way in which different sorts of animals are treated and regulated reflects obviously their implicit value and the way in which their value is constructed to the public, um, but also the way in which the values about different sorts of animal species can be mobilised. And a good example in Australia over the longer term would be whales. So Australia is um, at the forefront of uh, international campaigns to defend whales and uh, will sacrifice its relationship with one of its major trading partners, Japan, in very aggressively pursuing Japan's uh, whaling position. But Australia in the 1950s was one of the most active whaling countries in the world. And so we can see how, in a sense, values have changed, necessitating a policy shift. And that's less about the kind of resource basis of uh, whales and what they can do, and about the way in which the, the value of whales changed over that half century. Will policymaking about animal welfare become even more difficult as the world becomes more globalized? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, one of the interesting things that uh, I think we see in Australia is the way in which the extraterritorial nature of the industry affects Australian policymaking. And so the, the case of uh, Indonesia is a really good example. Australians got up in arms about what they would describe as 
the Indonesians' treatment of our cattle, but they weren't our cattle. We had sold those cattle to Indonesians, and Indonesians were processing them in line with their own practices, regulatory environment, and uh, and cultural values. They were just out of alignment with ours, and yet Australians still perceived those cows as somehow having an enduring connection to Australia. That's a good example. Another good example would be, say, um, attempts to phase out the testing of products on animals, um, and uh, certainly Australian consumers have been very um, keen to adopt products that are no longer te- tested on animals, and yet we deal in a global environment where China, for um, reasons of its own, increasingly requires animal testing on products that are going to be consumed by humans, particularly following a number of tainting scandals that have occurred there. So the policy-making environment in Australia has become transnational and globalised in many ways, and that what that means is that in addition to the multi-level game that is uh, policy-making in Australia, because Australia is a federal country with national, state and local levels of administration, um, that many of our actors also operate at the transnational level and so will move between different arenas um, based on their own assessment of what they can achieve. And, uh, and I think that's an interesting um, development. It's also a complexifying factor, but I think one of the things is that Parts of Australia have seen advantages in taking strong welfare standings because they can then use that to project themselves in the international marketplace. And so Tasmania, for example, annoyed many of the other states by taking a more uh, progressive or aggressive stance on uh, pig welfare regulation because it saw that as in alignment with this clean green image that it uses to market its products internationally, even though it was very annoying to other states who weren't willing to move as quickly on new regulations as Tasmania was. And that's just an example. Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. That's Peter Chen. His new book is Animal Welfare in Australia, Politics and Policy, published in October 2016 by Sydney University Press. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.